Well, good morning. <clears throat> so good to be with you. So good to sing praises to our God with you, to take the Lord's Supper with you. If you want to have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 9, that's where we're going to be for the whole of our time together this morning. There is an acronym that has become very popular over the last 10 years or so that we use. We use it mostly in sports, but other applications has kind of seeped its way into. And the acronym is GOAT. And Jerry, Jerry just mailed it to me, yeah. And that stands for, if you haven't heard it, I hope you've heard it, but if you haven't heard it, that's the greatest of all time. So Jesus had the goats and the sheep separated. If somebody calls you a goat now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. They're, they're saying you're the greatest of all time at something. Um, in the sports world, though, this has brought on a lot of debates, this new term, goat, okay? Uh, people have started asking questions like, who is the goat in each sport? So like Tom Brady in the NFL, he's the goat. A lot of people say because he's got seven Super Bowl rings, he's the greatest player to ever play football. Okay, but the big one that a lot of people have a lot of opinions on is, is in the NBA, basketball. Who's the goat in the NBA? Is it LeBron James or is it Michael Jordan? Okay, two really famous basketball players. Um, it fills up a lot of sports radio hours, a lot of talk show hours that this, when they have nothing to talk about, that's what they talk about, is that, that argument between those two. So that debate of who is the greatest. Um, there were similar debates in the first century, not, not about athletes, basketball wasn't a thing then, but the disciples bickered among themselves three times in the Gospels about who was the greatest among them. Who's the best of the 12? If we had like a power rankings, who would be number one and who would be number 12, okay? Um, so what I want to do with you this morning is talk about this story in Luke chapter 9 about who is the greatest, um, this argument that they, that they have. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at the context of this argument, see the stories around it, because what we often so do in our in our Bibles, especially in the Gospels, each little story is sectioned off with those headers that are great, but I think Luke has put each story in place before and after it for a certain reason, and we're going to dig into that a little bit this morning. Uh, so let's dive in, and I think there's going to be a lot of things that we can relate to in this. So, so let's start all the way up in chapter, uh, same chapter, verse 28. Uh, we're going to start in verse 28, read through verse 36, talking about the transfiguration. Read it with me if you would. Now about eight days after these sayings, <clears throat> he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. <clears throat> so imagine being Peter and James and John in this moment. You're seeing something that 
nobody's ever really going to get to see until we all get there, right? He sees Jesus in a more glorified state. He sees Moses, the hero of his faith. Uh, Elijah, another hero of his faith. They, ha- they hear the voice of God the Father confirming who Jesus is. This is a whole sermon in and of itself of what they get to witness right here. But have you ever thought about why Jesus only, to, only invites the three of them to an experience like this? Would it have been any harder for Jesus to just say, like, okay, the rest of the nine of you, like, tag along too. I want you to see this because this is really powerful and important. Why doesn't he do that? I'm not sure that there's necessarily a good reason, but because we don't need to question Jesus and why he does what he does, is these three men are going to be the leader of the church later on. But these men are human. Do you think that there was a temptation at all to feel superior as Peter and James and John for having experienced this amazing thing that the rest of them didn't get to experience? Or, on the flip side, feel inferior as the nine, like, why didn't we get to experience this? Why don't, why don't we get to go with you, Jesus, on these little expeditions where the disciples learn these amazing things? Keep that flavor in your mind as we continue. <clears throat> Let's look at verses 37 through 43. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Jesus, or Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it up, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Amazing miracle. Amazing miracle. But before we discuss it, notice that it's a day after the transfiguration, right after these potential feelings of exclusion, of not getting to be a part of an experience like that happen, something like this happens. And do you notice what the Father says in this amazing miracle in verse 40? Right there in the middle of what he says. He says, I begged your disciples to do it, to cast out the demon, but they couldn't. And notice that this is in front of a big crowd of people where they're saying they couldn't do it. We know from sister passages like Matthew 17 that the reason they can't do this miracle, they've already been given power over demons and authority to cast out demons, and they've done that. But this guy in particular, they can't do it. And the reason that Jesus gives for that is because of their little faith. So when he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, he's kind of talking about his disciples here, that they don't have the faith to do this. How are you feeling if you're a disciple right now? You can't cast out this demon. You're publicly called out that you can't cast it out. Jesus casts out the demon, and then he's exasperated at you because you can't cast out the demon because you don't have enough faith. Let's keep going in verse 43 through 45. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink in your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. 
but they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not per- so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So Luke kind of seems to indicate in the flow of his story here that while this amazing marveling is happening after the demon, Jesus takes aside his disciples and says, "Listen, like you got to hear this. this is, um, what I'm about to say is really important." And about the last thing that they would expect to come out of Jesus' mouth comes out of his mouth. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. How jarring would it be to hear those words right after this miracle? We don't have to infer about how they were feeling either, right? It says in the text that they were afraid. They were afraid to ask him about what this meant. So, three stories. Transfiguration, healing of the boy, foretelling of his death. How are the disciples feeling? I think embarrassed. I think frustrated at a lot of these situations. Confused. And maybe doubting themselves and whether they belong in this, in this 12. Are they feeling like the greatest right now? I think not. I think not. So then why right after these stories does an argument arise about who is the greatest? I think... There's a really big principle here that we, need to, that we need to talk about, and that's that self-doubt leads to pride. The fact that these men have gone through these experiences and Jesus has kind of torn them down a little bit, and rightfully so, how they're feeling can lead to pride. <clears throat> we put up a facade, we get defensive, we get arrogant, because we don't want to deal with that insecurity. And so what we do is we start looking around at other people and see, and see who's a little bit worse off than we are, we start ranking. And that's exactly what the disciples do, right? In verse 46, uh, an argument arises among them over who is the greatest. But I want you to try to picture this argument in your head with me. I, I kind of try to picture about what reasons that each disciple would have for why they're the greatest. Maybe Andrew says that, well, like, listen, I was one of the first disciples to find Jesus. Like, Peter, you think you're so great, but like, I'm the one that brought you to him, right? So I'm the one that deserves the most honor here. Maybe Matthew says like, well, you know, like you guys were fishermen. You weren't making that good of a living. So you didn't have to sacrifice that much to be here. I was a tax collector. Like, I was making bank. And I chose to give all that up to come be with Jesus. So I've sacrificed the most. So I'm really the greatest. Right, or maybe Peter turns around and says, like, listen, if you guys knew what just happened, I'm not telling you yet, but like, if you just knew what happened when we were on that mountain, the fact that I got to be there and see that and witness that, like, I'm the greatest. And then a little bit what Drew talked about last week, right? James says, like, uh, aren't you the one that he called Satan just a second ago? Like, I don't think you're really the greatest here. So I just imagine the bickering over a campfire for hours. And then, um, do you relate to that? relate to that at all? I relate to that in my own life. And, and they keep going there, right? It's not just this argument. Look, look past Jesus' response in verse 49 to 50. Let's read that one together. John answers, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. <clears throat> If they can't cast out a demon, <laughs> nobody can cast out a demon. He's not with us. Right? And then what about after that? Verses 51 through 55. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him 
who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Right after they don't understand about what Jesus is telling them, they go and try to punish somebody who knows even less. Insecurity, self-doubt, and it leads to pride. So think about your life and think about how we might do the same thing with the, that these people do in these stories. What about exclusion? Does that cause you to have self-doubt? Does that cause uh, insecurity? You feel left out. You don't understand why other people are being picked for certain things instead of you. That's insecurity. So just like the disciples, your reaction is to bicker and to try to tear each other down. What about failing in front of other people? Notice that there's a huge crowd of people that, and, they, and this guy says in front of all of them, like, I tried to have your disciples cast it out. Didn't want to bother you, Jesus, but they couldn't do it. So now I'm coming to you. So what do they do? Their reaction is to try to shut down the success of other people, people who can cast out demons. You ever been there? What about lack of knowledge? Jesus tells them this very strange and hard saying, and they're really confused and afraid to ask about it. So what is their reaction? I'm just going to go and judge somebody else that knows even less than me. You ever been there? In these moments when we strip back the facade, when we pull back the curtains of our prideful faces, all we're left with is just self-doubt staring at us. And the result of that is in all these stories, Jesus is not glorified. So what's the solution? What's the solution to this? What's the answer to avoiding the pattern of insecurity and pride and getting them just out of our lives? Well, we might say the solution is just work harder, right? Get that insecurity out of your life by studying more, by praying more, by being better, changing your heart to be better. What's the problem with that? We're always going to have insecurity there, right? There's, we're human beings, and we can't ever root out every single insecurity. <clears throat> I think the answer, one of the answers that Luke is trying to show us lies right in Jesus' response in the middle of this text. Let's read those verses again in verse 46 through 48. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is the least among you all is the one who is great. What is Jesus saying here in this story? I kind of wanted him, when I was studying this, I really wanted him to just be like, just be like the child. That's a pretty simple answer. Be like the child because then you all need to just be innocent and stop thinking so much about yourselves. That's not what he says, right? He says, whoever receives this child. What does that mean? Well, I think Jesus is saying a couple things here. So children were not regarded as much in the first century. They're not economically important. They're not socially important. So to receive a child meant to receive someone who could give nothing in return. Someone who could not improve your status or your honor. Someone who could not increase your case in the power rankings about being the best disciple, but would actually lower it. Jesus is saying here that instead of letting their insecurities drive them to pride, 
They should lean into service of the humble and lowly. They need to stop caring so much about honor and just associate with the lowly. And I think we all need to think about that a little bit more. Do I serve the lowly? Do you serve the lowly? If we're looking to make a name for ourselves and get as much honor as we can, we distance ourselves from the lonely. We don't want, to make, we, we don't want them to make us look bad and decrease our social status, and we don't want to have to deal with their troubles. So we just fill our lives with friends that can give us something in return, that benefit us in a lot of ways, that increase our honor, and we stay away from the ones that can't give us anything. Thank God, thank God that Jesus did not do that with the disciples, that Jesus did not do that with me and with you. He could have chosen to only spend time with people that benefit him, but instead he came down and he associated with people who were so much lower than he could ever be. When we follow in his footsteps and stop caring so much about how we're perceived, stop caring so much about how we're honored, Jesus says, we receive him, and we receive the Father. And that's what it's really all about. And I think Jesus is making a second point, and that's what we're going to end on this morning. Um, when you accept your place as a servant, that is when you become truly great. That is so countercultural, and that is so counterinstinctual. But that's what Jesus is saying here. We tell ourselves that greatness is in knowledge and greatness is in strength and power, but Jesus is saying that true greatness in the eyes of the one that really matters comes when you accept your role as the least. When you stop trying to prove how great you are and we just serve with love, that's when we become truly great. Great in the eyes of God. And the beautiful thing that I love about Jesus is that he doesn't just talk the talk here. Didn't he exemplify this exactly in himself? If there was anybody who would want to, wanted to jump into this argument and prove to them, like I, I just kind of imagine it, another reaction he could have had in this argument was like, you know what, guys, like stop, stop, stop. Me. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. Isn't that true? Did anybody have an argument with that? You see what I just did? You guys couldn't do, but I could do it but he doesn't do that. He had all of the knowledge, all of the power, all of the strength, but he did not come to be served. He came to serve. He empties himself, though in the form of God, and takes on the form of a servant. And that is true greatness. That's a hard lesson to learn because the world tells us that the path to greatness is by education and wealth and powerful connections, but when we embrace Jesus' way, that's when we're on the path to greatness. Maybe not greatness in the world's eyes, but greatness in the eyes of the one who really matters. And then lastly, disciples didn't really have a good grasp on this, but the beautiful thing about the gospel is that they can change. Right? Think about John the Apostle. In Acts chapter 8, that same apostle that is calling down fire on Samaria for not understanding what to do, he goes to Samaria 
to meet new, his new brothers and sisters that have been converted to Christ. And he gives them the Holy Spirit. He lays his hands on them. So maybe you feel stuck. Maybe you feel like every time someone excludes you or some, something bad happens in your life, every, every time you fail, you just get in this rut of insecurity and then you just think way too highly of yourself. John changed. So we can change too. <clears throat> we don't have to allow our insecurities to keep bringing us to pride. We can make a real difference in God's kingdom, not with our power, not with our knowledge, but when we bring ourselves to humility and servitude. So the question this morning is, are we going to follow Jesus' path or are we going to follow the world's path? Think about your life this morning. What does your life reflect? What does your heart reflect? And if you have any need, <clears throat> just please come together, come forward as we stand and as we sing.